0: study this morning, begins in uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews, and verse 17. Here are some of the admonitions, the exhortations that's given in this chapter. Uh, I may not have got them all, but that's that's my list. Uh, You can look it over. Uh, But this gives us a synopsis, a rundown of this chapter. Uh, He begins to admonish these Hebrews to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets them. And then to begin to, number two, run with patience, a race is set before us. Life is a race, isn't it? you got to make time for what's important to you, and people generally do. That's why they're out <coughs> camping this weekend, if they are, uh, boating or whatever they do. Uh, so run with patience. The race is set before you. And as you run it, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and consider him in his sacrifice, his life how he run with patience, the race that was set before him. Uh, And then he goes into a discourse on enduring God's discipline, the fact that God does not accept a son, that he does not chasten. And if you would be a son, then you would render yourself to the chastening of the Lord through the discipline, the chastening through his word. And he leads into from that fact of being in subjection unto uh, God and live. Uh, He talks about lifting up hands, uh, feeble hands and feeble knees, undergirding them, and get about the task at hand is the idea. Uh, Most people just take the easy path in life. Well, it leads to death. It leads to shame it leads to many places that you really don't want to go. So lift up them hands and them feeble knees, and uh, and uh, as you run with patience, the race is set before you. Uh, make straight paths for your feet. That's a job that you have to do. You have to decide what work, work, uh, straight paths on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night. Uh, on any occasion, you've got to make straight paths for your feet. You're in charge of your feet. All right? <coughs> follow peace with all men. He didn't say you follow peace with just those that, uh, that, uh, that admire you and like you and uh, have some uh, uh, something to offer to you. It says to follow peace with all men without whom no man will see the lord you cannot be claimed to be a christian and not follow peace with all men <coughs> look diligently don't only look to your goings and your doings and your things but look diligently Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Refuse him not that speaks from heaven. At one time he spoke from earth and it was devastating. It was awesome as it scared those people half to death. They couldn't endure the voice of God, the command of God. And so uh, we're to look diligently to him and refuse him not whatever he says goes whatever his law is that's what you that's what you run in that's what you do and then uh, he closes out the, that seven that 12th chapter with the admonition serve god acceptably is there an acceptable way to serve god that's what it said wasn't it well what's the matter with the denominational the world they're not looking for the acceptable way they're looking for their way. And you got to be wise enough to see that. After all, John said, try the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have went out into the world. And so, <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> so he closes out with the thought of serving God acceptably. And how are you going to do that? With reverence, great respect, and awe for God, who He is. He's not a thing to joke about. He's not a thing to take lightly. He made this universe, and He made you, and He'll destroy you, or He'll save you. Life and death, your life and death, hangs in the balance. Serve God acceptably with reverence, and godly fear are we to fear god you better believe it you better believe it we love him to death because of his grace and mercy but we also fear lest that which is lame be turned out of the way lest we fail of the great uh, honor that's been given us as his children and his family So, verse 17, he says, Afterward, as you know, uh, uh, when Esau wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. <clears throat> Well, he's talking about, as we see in verse 16, uh, that he was a godless man who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights. Now, that's what the world is doing, is selling their inheritance rights that God offered them for the pleasures of sin for a season. They're out this morning wherever they're at, Uh, enjoying what they chose to do. They didn't choose to be here with us, did they? It's kind of evident, isn't it? And so the admonitions that Paul gives there in this whole chapter. So here was a boy who uh, sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Look around you at your neighbors, your friends, your relatives. What are they selling their birthright for? They're not here this morning in anticipation of learning about God and His law to walk in it. No, that ain't what they're interested in. That's not their interest at all. And they'll sell their birthright, as it were, for a bowl of beans. So... Here in verse 17, uh, the writer announces the deed is done. Esau must learn that certain actions bear certain inevitable results. You don't get through this life with impunity, without judgment. You don't do it. I don't care who you are. You can be Al Capone. You can be whoever you can think of. No one goes through this life without with impunity without judgment whatever we sow that is what we're going to reap and then what scripture says it wasn't lying to you it's telling you the truth wants you to know that fact and so you're to consider your ways uh, as he said uh, about a third into his this chapter and you cannot sow one thing and expect to reap something else. It don't work that way. Now evolution says that that's the way it works, but that ain't the way it works in life. Whatever you sow, that's what you're gonna reap. I've never seen a farmer yet that planted a peach tree and was upset because he thought sure he'd get plums from it. He would laugh at you being so stupid but yet he'll fall fall in line with this idea of evolution. It's the craziest thing he ever ever saw. And when Esau is pleading for a change of the circumstances, and one day on the Day of Judgment, there will be a lot of people wishing that they could change the circumstances. He is pleading against history because the history of his life was that he always made the wrong choices. He never looked diligently to his uh, way of uh, life. Uh, He didn't lift up hands that are feeble and knees and uh, and get after what God has put him to the task here on earth. Uh, He's never done any of these things. He could care less. He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. So you can't change the history of your life. And his his father knows it, that he's pleading to, and even if Esau was not willing to accept it. uh, The minor brother Jacob had no right to the blessing, but by guile he bought, bought it from Esau for a bowl of soup. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to the darkness in to the darkness, gloom, and storm. So here the writer turns his attention to a constant a contrast between the physical, the visible, earthly manifestations accompanying the giving of the law of Moses and the silent. Invisible heavenly manifestations that characterized uh, the giving of the new covenant of Messiah. The spiritual and the physical. Esau was a man uh, manipulated by the physical senses. Israel was also manipulated by the physical as it relates to their religion. They want God to manifest himself visibly so that they could live by sight rather than by faith. If you be aware of the fact that faith empties all fear from that which is visible, it fills the soul of the believer with a calm confidence and trust. Uh, He seems to be asking, do you really want to go back to the scenes of Mount Sinai? That's what he's asking these Jews in his writing here in verse 16. Remember what the visible manifestation of God's presence on the mountain created fear among the people of Israel. Now, the coming of the Messiah was not a fearful, awe-inspiring event that scared the people. The fire, the darkness, the gloom, and the storm that's mentioned there were only a part of the spectacle of at Sinai. And so the writer continues to recall the dread that uh, that, that occasion brought. <clears throat> Verse 19 to a trumpet that blasts, or to such a voice speaking words, so that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. Nowadays, the heathen just tells you uh, we don't discuss religion on the job or politics. They don't like the word of God. It has a fear in it because it don't. God don't hesitate when He tells you about the life and death situation here. So such fearful experiences accompanied the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. Perhaps it was a loud, sober, and even a menacing voice of words from God that created the most terrible that most terror in the people. They pled for the cessation of such speaking. The trumpet blast called them to attention, but it was the words that seemed to have created their awe on that occasion. Verse twenty Because they could not bear what was commanded, and what here was one of the things commanded: if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. the unholy that's the idea you come into God's presence there's quite an awe that you should have of this God and that's how he finishes in this chapter uh, serve God acceptably as we discussed there is an acceptable way to serve God the world don't recognize it they think just whatever I want to do whatever seems good to me no, you serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's how he closes out this chapter. So no creature would stand in His presence uninvited. The command to stone the animal that touched the mountains—a mountain uh, only intensified their fear of what would happen to them should they violate on on of the orders issued with such a menacing tone so to draw near to God physically in those circumstances would have resulted in physical death for any of them even the animals the ignorant animals verse twenty one The sight was so terrible that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So even the one who received that law, Moses, was literally shaken by the experience. The writer seems to be asking his readers if they really want to walk by sight. We couldn't handle it. Remember how that physical manifestation back then created more fear than confidence? Surely that would not be uh, what they would want. The coming of Christ was not in that manner. His coming was very gentle, very inviting, as he called upon the world to recognize his authority, uh, his power, his love. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That was not the nature of the voice they heard at Mount Sinai. But that's the voice we hear by faith from the Word of God. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now you haven't come to this mountain that burned with fire and brimstone and the voices and, and all that he described there that caused him people to be horribly fearful. And Moses even uh, being fearful uh, and trembling with fear, it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, verse twenty-two, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. Now you see the nature of the language there. The commas. You you notice the commas? There's three descriptions given of the same place, isn't there? He's not talking about three separate things. He's talking about three things that belong to the one thing that he's discussing. He says, you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. And so it's Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and the city of God. He's talking about the church. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. (laughs) You know, if we could see by the physical sight, this building this morning is full of angels rejoicing over the offer of God and the presentation of it. I mean, you may not be rejoicing. I had to get up this morning and eat cold oatmeal and this, that, and it was raining. And I just had a hell of a time getting here. Yeah, we can look at all the dreary things. If we could only see the joy that's offered us, the joy that we have because of the promises of God, we'd be like those angels because in the church, in this heavenly Jerusalem, In this Mount Zion, in this city of God, there's thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. They didn't find it dreadful. The speaker, you know, he just don't speak the way I like. And it just upsets my whole day. Well, you'd have been upset if the angels spoke to you. You know that? If you've got an upset manner of looking at things, you ain't never going to be satisfied unless you're out on a camping trip somewhere or a boat having fun in the sun. So you've so what he says here is you didn't come to that mountain that burned and it was awesome. But you have come to the calm, quiet, uh, invisible realities of God's spiritual presence with his people. Mount Zion originally was a Jebusite fortress back in the days of David. It was later conquered by David and he he extended the south, the stronghold to cover the entire city of Jerusalem. The whole uh, city came to be known as Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem. Solomon later built the temple in Jerusalem. And when God symbolically established his his residence in the temple, it came to be recognized as the dwelling place of God. Christians have not come to a physical city, but to a heavenly Jerusalem. You notice what the text said? Not an earthly Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. So what did the earthly Jerusalem represent? In its shadowy figure of what was coming, represented the heavenly Jerusalem, represented God's presence not by visibility but by the, the order of faith. Psalms 9 and verse 11 says, Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in, in Zion. Where does God dwell? in the church, in Zion, this New Jerusalem. That's the city of God. And then Psalms 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. So Mount Zion is symbolic uh, for God's residence. But it is a heavenly city. Christians now have become the temple of God, his dwelling, uh, his dwelling place. The name Jerusalem means the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means, the interpretation of it. Not a city of fear as Israel had in the presence of God. Uh, this, uh, the domain where thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly stand before the presence of God. Their joyful assembly stands in spiritual union with God and without fear. Uh, their joy, uh, it's mentioned there, contrasts Israel's fear that we read about earlier as the give, at the giving of the law. It is not without significance that the writer is gathering all of the prophetic terminology used in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom of Messiah and applies it to the church. All the prophets, like Isaiah, Micah, Daniel, and others, employed the terms used by the writer in his context to define the coming reign of Messiah with his people. Very peaceful, very joyful, rather than very fearful as they came to Mount Zion. God spoke on Mount Zion to a physical nation physical blessings and their walk was according to law not grace that's quite a difference from what we have in Christ and according to law that would scare you to death wouldn't it thou shalt not, thou shalt not thou shalt not and the burning question that must have been in the minds of a lot of them people was what if we do That brings about fear. It does today. When you read Romans 7, you see the man, uh, Paul, as he places himself by illustration under the law. He said, my intellects, I'm intelligent enough to see that the law of God is good. But (laughs) I have a law in my members that wars against the law of God. And it brings me into captivity to that law that if you sin, you die. You're cut off from God. God will not tolerate your presence. Uh, to put it another way, he won't, he won't allow your dirty butt in His presence. That makes it very clear, doesn't it? Because a lot of people think they're really somebody. I mean, they, they, if they go to services, they think that God ought to be really pleased that they come into His presence. Well, anyway, verse uh, twenty-three. You come. To, he's continuing to describe what he started in the earlier verse to the church of the firstborn. Now, what's this Zion and Jerusalem and city of God? It's the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, notice this firstborn. Their their names. How many of these firstborn are they? They're not talking about Jesus. Because there's a whole bunch of them. It says, To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. like the word firstborn does not relate to Christ there? The ter- uh, that term is often applied in the New Testament to him, that's true. But it is not used in this verse. Jesus will be included in the overall picture, but not until verse 23, where it says, incidentally, by faith known. Uh, to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. He's included there, but that's not talking specifically of him. It is true that he's the firstborn, but we are also. All Christians are God's firstborn children, uh, his doubly honored heirs. The Greek word for firstborn is plural, and therefore relates to all Christians. That's why it says in that verse, whose names, plural, are written in heaven. So the firstborn is talking about the Christian, you and me. We are treated by God as the firstborn, as well as Jesus being the firstborn himself. Whose names are written in heaven, the verse said. That confirms that they are the firstborn ones who are subjects under consideration here. Remember Esau sold his uh, position as the firstborn of Isaac for a bowl of soup? It is not likely the writer applies the firstborn term uh, to his readers without some consideration to the background uh, failure of Esau. He didn't think much of his firstborn relationship. He sold it for a bowl of rice, a bowl of beans. He continues, he says, you have come to God. Well, with great boldness and confidence in chapter 10, verse 19. The Hebrew people seem to have been repelled from God when he appeared on Mount Sinai. But in the church his people draw near with confident joy. And so there was the repulsion at Mount Sinai and the joy of the Messiah in the church. The angels rejoicing. So God is the judge of all men, it says. But Christians do not fear him for they will be at judgment but not under judgment. Look at John 5 and verse 24. I remember the first time I saw this. It just blew my socks off, as it were. First, John fi- 5 and verse 24. Or mm. er, excuse me, John 5 verse 24. I'm sorry. Somebody got that. I tell you the truth whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And so, Christians don't fear him like they did at Mount Sinai, for they will be at judgment, but not under judgment. On the the great day. And then he mentions the spirits of righteous men made perfect. It seems to relate to the great men of faith of Hebrews 11 that he's already presented. Uh, That chapter closed with the affirmation that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's verse 40 of chapter 11. Uh, They have been made perfect by the blood of Christ. With this, the writer tells us that we have come into the relationship where all of the redeemed of all ages, whether it was the patriarchal, a mosaical, or the Christian age, are gathered around the throne of God. They are joined by the angels as a all join and joyful assembly. Verse 24. When you've come to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of God, uh, to the place where the angels are and the spirits of just men made perfect, uh, you've also come here in verse 24 to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the spir- sprinkling, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel, of the blood of Abel. So under the dominion of Messiah, we enjoy the relationship of intimate union with God, with the angels, with the redeemed of the ages, and our fellow Christians. (coughs) These relations are spiritual in nature and are spiritually perceived. We know it by revelation of the Word of God. We do not experience it by the senses, by our animalistic physical senses. We prefer this relationship uh, revealed by God's Word, perceived in the mind, experienced through faith. We do not need external manifestations of the physical that scares us in order to see the beauty of what the writer is saying. We have come to the, uh, he said, to the sprinkled, sprinkled blood of Christ that grants all these relationships and privileges. This is the blood that inaugurated the new covenant. It cleansed our conscience and dedicated all the heavenly counterparts to the old Hebrew system. The blood of Messiah speaks better than. Uh, than that of Abel. Of what does it speak? Whatever it is, it's better. It speaks of redemption, both present for the soul and future for the body. Abel's blood does speak, the writer told us in chapter 11, but so does his faith. His blood and faith speaks of the vitality the validity of trusting God and of serving Him throughout life. Abel's blood tells us that it's worth whatever price we have to pay to maintain our faith. Even if our faith leads to be destroyed by an envious brother, Abel was a martyr to a righteous cause. But that is not all that can be said of Jesus' blood. Though, he, uh, though the cause for which he died was uh, righteous, his blood was not common as some were treating it. In Hebrews 10, verse 29, Jesus' blood speaks a better message about a new covenant with a new sanctuary, with a new relationship with God, without a forever... Uh, with a forever priest to minister to the needs of his people, Christians have come to glorious relationship in his kingdom that makes the old system fade into almost total insignificance. That's what he's telling these Jews: don't go back to that insignificant thing. Its day is past. It fulfilled its purpose in God's plan. It's over. There's nothing there anymore. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Words of warning can also be words of encouragement. As the writer has of the difference between the awesome, fearful, terrifying manifestation of the visible presence of God, we are led to prefer the quiet, calm of the invisible spiritual union with God. Now that we see the glory of living according to faith in the invisible reality, do not refuse him who speaks, that's his admonition to him. In Hebrews 1, verse 2, God spoke in those last days in His Son. God speaks in those last days in His Son. It is possible for a Christian to turn away from Christ and to lose the redemption that He has uh, brought to us. The writer continually insists again and again on the peril of, of turning away from Messiah, chapter 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, and now chapter 12. The writer is insisting, do not lose what you have. Stay with the Christ. Maintain your commitment. Live by faith. Do not give in to the physical. Do not give in to the urge to return to the old Hebrew system Because if you do, the writer assures us we would receive greater punishment than those that have refused God under the old system. Why would we we refuse... Why would we... uh, Receive. Well, my word's not coming to me soon. Receive greater punishment. Receive greater punishment. Yeah, they'll receive, we'll receive greater punishment. Why? Because of the expression of the new covenant. It's been made known. It's been declared. John said he wrote those things that uh, that uh, you might believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and here people won't even read it. What do you think is going to happen to them? It's going to be pretty severe, isn't it? I mean, God went to a lot of trouble, didn't he? He built a universe for us. Uh, He maintains it for us. Uh, We enjoy his garden all the time, don't we? You ever drive through this earth and and recognize it's God's garden? I don't care whether you're looking at the desert or uh, tree-enthroned mountains, it doesn't matter. You're looking at God's desert. Isn't it pretty? Now you look at the desert where somebody's tore up his garden and planted theirs and walked away from it. What do you see? A horrible mess. And it always will be until it turns back to nature the way God made it. What happens when the cat goes on the mountain and pushes around? They just erase the beauty that God gave and the grace that God gave that mountain. And every time you drive by, oh, look at that what man did to that mountain. Have you ever heard of anybody in all of your life that thought so much of man's creation that they was excited with their wife and their children to go to to go camping at Hanford? I mean, we can't wait to get our eight hours in and get away from that mess out there. All it is is cement buildings and just just a mess that they've done with God's garden (laughs) (laughs) so verse 26 at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised once more I I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens So once more, God says, how shall we escape if we turn away from him who warned us from heaven? Uh, Listen to the warning. That's the idea. The warning is taken from Haggai 2 and verse 6. At the giving of the law of Moses, the voice of God shook the earth, it says. But he now promised again, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. God shook the righteous part of the law of Moses when he terminated it by nailing it to the cross. Excuse me. God shook the religious uh, part of the law of Moses when he terminated it by nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. He will soon shape the, the total commonwealth of the Jewish people with, when the Romans dismantled political structures of that system in the year of A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 27, the words once more indicated the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So the writer's building not only out of the fact that God uh, shook Mount Sinai when he made his visible appearance there, we come down through history to the days of the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, had exposed Israel, had ex- exported Israel to Babylon in captivity for 70 years. Under Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the Jews returned to Jerusalem and find a city in uh, rubble. Using the salvaged material available, they built a town, a lean-to temple, and it is not very beautiful. There are some men there in Haggai's day that remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple. It was a fabulous structure. But it had been totally destroyed, and to compare that glory, glorious temple of Solomon with the one built from uh, the junk heap was both sad and degrading to the people and certainly to God. Some of those old men that are passing by in Haggai's day are weeping because they remembered the glory of the former temple. But there are those; there are other people that uh, pass by and they see that old Shantytown temple where God lives and it, doesn't, it does not seem to bother them. It bothered Haggai uh, that it doesn't bother them. He cries out, all you that pass by, is it nothing to you? He seems to be saying, just look at this shameful temple. Is this a suitable place for God to dwell? We are the people of God, and our God lives is living in a lean-to, uh, rubble-built temple. He deserves more than that. And that is when God spoke to Haggai and assured him that even this temple would be dismantled again. God is looking forward to the time when Titus, the son of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, will enter into the city of Jerusalem and will totally and completely devastate it. The writer wants his readers to understand that the prophecy of Haggai is about to be fulfilled in A.D. 70 when it was fulfilled. The temple was abandoned by God already before the cross of Christ. And you can read about that in Matthew 23, 38 and Luke 13, 35. And then it will be destroyed by the Romans when they come in just a very little time, he said in chapter 10, verse 37, after the writing of the book of Hebrews. And so it was just a couple of years after the writing of Hebrews when AD 70 came into play. The heavenly temple or sanctuary of Christ can never be shaken. It does not belong to the nature of things that are made, as was the old Hebrew temple. It will now be shaken because his sanctuary is heavenly. And there, uh, it will not be shaken because his sanctuary is heavenly. And there will never be a Nebuchadnezzar that will assault Mount Zion, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Remember us reading in Revelation the uh, 20, uh, 20th chapter, when God loosed the devil for a little season, he manifested himself clear to everybody, didn't he? He hates the church, he hates God, He hates the truth. He does everything. He pours a flood out of his mouth to dr- drown the fearful the fearful. It's false false doctrine pouring out of his mouth like a flood to drown people. What happened to him? He didn't fire one arrow into the city of God, as it were. We have an illustration of that in the Old Testament, don't we, in the days of Haggai. Hezekiah, excuse me, Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem. He met the fearfulness of that day and realized that it was a reality physically. But God stepped in and killed 185,000 of his troops in one night Uh, and so this Mount Zion that he's talking to these Jews about the new Jerusalem it cannot be touched by the armies of men and that was a picture in Revelation 20 what happened to the devil (coughs) he gathered Gog and Magog, the enemies of God's people uh, that's a symbolism and brings them against the church His intents to destroy it. What did God do? Well, John tells you he he was commissioned to write what he saw. What did he see next? I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, from whose face the heavens and the earth fled away but there was found no place for him. And I saw the dead small and great. That's not dead physically. That's dead spiritually. That's the context there. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. We stand before God right now. The books are open. And another book was open called the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that are written in the book. And so... uh, the protection of God's city is a fortification that cannot be invaded by men. I don't care if your name is Biden I don't care what your name is how much authority you think you have you cannot go against the church of the living God you and I are that church we're the call of God is God going to let anything detrimental happen to us now, it may look, some things may happen that looks detrimental to you and me, but then who are we to interpret what's good and bad? God's in charge. See, my faith leaps to this point and says, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is happening, but I do know that the one who controls all things has allowed it or commissioned it, one of the two, and I'm pleased with it. Well, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So the unshakable kingdom of Christ is the church. We are uh, receiving in it the vindication of Messiah's rule when he sends the Roman army to remove all remaining vestiges of the old Hebrew system. While the old is being swept away, the new is being firmly established among all men through the spread of the Gospel. That which can be removed will be removed. But that just confirms uh, the permanency of that which remains. With the coming of Messiah, The temporary will give way to the permanent. There is a call to praise and thanksgiving in the unshakable kingdom of Christ. There's also a call to worship God with total reverence for his dignity and all for his power. Verse 29 closes out the chapter with that statement, for our God is a consuming fire. So the fire that consumes... Jerusalem expresses God's judgment upon the unrighteous enemy that rejects uh, his messenger Jesus Christ and the message that he brings through, uh, uh, through others though others will be consumed by those fires Christians are not touched or menaced, menaced, menaced. they're not damaged by them. can't even pronounce it So next week we'll go into Mm -hmm. chapter 13. Thank you.